Welcome to Track and Observe. My guest today is Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? Pretty good. Pretty good, all things considered. Nice, nice to hear. Uh, one thing uh, I ask all my guests, uh, this question is constant uh, throughout the podcast, is what was one thing you came across recently that inspired you? I, it, there's so many people I'm kind of inspired by. I think, um, you know, in most recently, um, you know, I worked in the airlines uh, as an airline vendor of uh, Wi-Fi for a long time. And obviously um, with COVID-19, that was a, you know, a big, a big shakeup to that business, right? Um, yeah. We went from being a very stable business to, you know, being very worried about, about our jobs. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, my team, as well as a number of other coworkers around me, you know, not just one specific person, but really just pushed me to, to, to kind of lead and be better. Um, and, and I mean that in a way of like, people were very kind of nervous and, and I'm kind of some, someone that kind of predicts things. I don't know. And people kind of look to, I found myself kind of in a state of, uh, of leadership and I really was inspired, um, to work harder and be better by a lot of the people around me. Um, in fact, this, this last week was my first week since I've left that job. And I've had a number of those people kind of <laughs> reach out and, you know, just, uh, I don't know, just want to connect. And, and it's just been so inspirational. It's, uh, as easy it is to get like down and, you know, feel very isolated right now. Um, that kind of just really put the fire under me for the last week and, and continues to. So I'm, I'm real fortunate for that. Oh, that's, that's awesome to hear that you still are able to impact people positively and then be in a position where you can uh, lead people and share your knowledge and your experience with them. You know, that's, that's really, that's really cool. What is uh, one person that when you were growing up or that actually uh, kept you uh, motivated, that kept you uh, focusing on your goal? Um, that's an interesting question. <laughs> there's, a, there's a positive way to answer that and there's a negative way to answer that. Right. Uh, and I guess, I guess the positive way is, you know, um, you know when, I, when I was younger, my stepfather, Bob, was just amazing. I mean, he was mm -hmm. kind of the rock um, in a very, very crazy, tumultuous kind of uh, childhood existence, neighborhood, um, and lots of things. So he's somebody that, you know, ran his own business my entire life, you know, up mm -hmm. until he passed a couple years ago. He was an entrepreneur. And, and that kind of, I don't know, gave me a certain attitude just about life and work and business and career. And, you know, how, how, how we kind of can create our own spaces. Mm -hmm. um, we don't necessarily need to, you know, follow. I don't want to say not follow the rules, but um, we can create our own lanes. So that was, you know, kind of something I looked to. Uh, but at the same time, I was, <laughs> I was pretty rebellious. I wasn't the most, um, I wasn't the best kid. And I do have to say that the, the neighborhood and kind of the city of Chicago um, was mm -hmm. very inspirational in a different way. I don't want to say in a negative way, but in a way where, you know, it was a very, it was very tough and then you were constantly being challenged. And so yeah. you could either fold. And I knew a lot of people that, you know, stayed in the house and were scared of that and, you know, didn't, didn't interact because of that. Mm -hmm. And then there's those of us that not only went outside, but went up the block and, you know, hung out at the park and went here and, and, and refused to let, you know, um, negative surroundings or whether that's gang violence or, you know, whatever. Um, mm -hmm stop us from interacting like we knew it was part of our environment and we we grew through that you know and i, I think both of those things created uh kind of a, a way i go about life and a fearlessness if you know about about certain things so yeah you definitely read about that conflicts definitely build character and th that's something like i want to instill you know in my future children you know 
that uh, whenever you get faced, you know, with some adversities, uh, that's an opportunity for you to become greater, for you to become stronger, for you to overcome. And then not only for that moment, but it's something you're going to have in your tool set when you meet certain things in the future you'll know how to deal with them, you know? So it's, yeah. it, it's true. It's true. But there's an, there's an interesting kind of point. I have a question. I almost mm-hmm. have a question for you. Like, how do you do that um, with a young child without it, without putting them in a negative situation? And that's the thing I kind of like struggle with is like, like, you know, you, you can get a certain understanding of the world and you can grow up in a certain way and that'll make you more prepared. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a certain toughness, but um, in that you kind of lose a certain innocence. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so like thinking forward to like, a, you know, your future child, like how do you balance that? How do you go, okay, I want you to be like strong enough to deal with this world, but I don't want to like, you know, poison you and make you disillusioned, you know, at a young age. Yeah, I think it's going to come to, because, you know, every kid face certain challenges. So they're going to face yeah. something in the future. And hopefully they'll come to me and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm going through, dad. Can you, you know, can you help me with it? And one thing I'm going to make sure that I do, I'm going to make sure that I pay attention to my kids, to pay attention to what they're going through and take certain things that I learned, right? And then tell them about my past experiences. Hey, you know, I went through this too. So when I went through that certain thing you're going through, that's what I did. So yeah. I'm going to basically use my past experiences to try to connect with them within their current situation. Because as we know, as parents, we can only take care of our kids once they're in the house. And then once they leave the house, yeah. you know, everything is, is, you know, is possible. So mm-hmm. I'm going to make sure that I have a strong foundation with them at home and letting them know, hey, you can come to me and talk to me about everything. To make them understand that, you know, I was like you. You know, I was... Yeah. I face these these uh, adversities or these these uh, conflicts. They might not be parallel, right? But I'll still be able to open up to them and tell them, "Hey, you you can come to me. You know, let's let's talk about this." Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, like your background? You know, from you know where you came from in Chicago to what you're doing um, currently. Yeah, yeah, it's a I don't know a lot of things. <laughs> I could, I could, I could give a, a, a probably another hour on like, oh, I did this, I did that. Yeah. Um, I've, I'm somebody that that is uh, kind of switched careers a number mm-hmm. of times. I've always had kind of a unique set of interests, whether they be from more creative interests. Mm-hmm. I was like a DJ when I was a teenager and in my early twenties, oh. um, or like very business minded interests. Um, I ran, I ran my own uh, uh, betting group um, focused on betting on uh, the NBA and WNBA for almost ten years. Ten years. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we, we were betting when I say a betting group, I mean like, a you know, three to six people risking in somewhere in the range of, you know, half a million dollars a week. So, I mean, this is like, wow, um, large, large stakes. So that I did that for a period of time. Prior to that, I worked for an audio company, you know, um, mm-hmm. doing some product management, um, kind of in a consulting capacity. Uh, and from there, you know, I've, I've uh, I kind of found a space in data and, and predictive analytics. I don't know how, what I'd call myself now. I'm, I mean, my technical man, I'm a pricing manager for a regional alcohol company here, but I've done everything from, you know, data science to data management. Um, and the betting group, while it sounds exciting, is really just <laughs> lots of data science and, and data management and, and decision making and investment. So I don't know. I've, I've kind of done a lot of these things in different spaces. Been very lucky to kind of just find opportunities, you know, um, I was working uh, in 2008 when, when there was the crash and I, I found a way to kind of pivot pretty quickly mm-hmm. and not be professionally affected. And um, 
well, I shouldn't say professionally affected, but I, I you know, I didn't, I didn't miss a ton of paychecks. Mm-hmm. And I kind of find myself in a similar situation, you know, uh, most recently of yeah. having to quickly, <laughs> quickly yeah. uh, find a new job after being furloughed. So I don't know. I'm, I'm a person that loves numbers and business. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, you know, I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to find, find a home here and there um, along the way. So. Oh, that, that's amazing. So would you say that your, your love for numbers and your love for data management and basically trying to predict where certain outcomes might be, do you think that's something you apply, you know, in your day-to-day life to make certain decisions to actually keep you basically on your toes to keep you sharp? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it comes from like, again, you know, growing up where I grew up and how I grew up and all of that, like mm-hmm. every day, like you're, you're risking, like, not to say every day is a risk, but you yeah. understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you're going to go hang out, you know, with your friends on Fullerton and Western, like yeah. that's that, you know, in, in 1996, that was a very that wasn't like it is now where you're just going around Logan Square. You know, if I had, you know, those same friends that were from Fullerton and Western and I wanted to hang out, you know, closer to my neighborhood, you know, by like Morris and Sheridan, <laughs> mm-hmm. there was a risk assessment at play. Um, yeah. You know, there's certain, um, you know, Chicago is a very diverse city, but it's also, you know, historically a very racially segregated city. Um, yeah. So, you, you know, you're just always very aware of who you're around and, you know, who you brought around with you. So I don't know. I feel like a lot of my risk comes from that, like understanding where I can go and, and can I get it, you know. Um, there was a video game arcade way back in the day on uh, in, in Rogers Park on mm-hmm. um, Clark and Devon. Yeah, and you could take we could take the bus and like you are like two blocks away. But man, they were like these Latin kings were there on the corner mm-hmm. and you knew it was going to be a problem. Like and so it was like, you know, how yeah. badly do you want to go play Street Fighter, too? You know, how bad do you, do you, you know, you want to go spend the money I made at the at the deli, you know, that I, I worked at and, you know, go play Mortal Kombat or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> sometimes we, we went and it wasn't a problem. And, you know, other times we, you know, we got jumped, we ran away, whatever the case may be. So I don't know. I, th- I think a lot of it comes from that. It's just uh, the risk of Chicago, <laughs> the yeah. risk of walking the streets of Chicago in the 90s. Wow. I see what you mean. That, that, that makes yeah. perfect sense. Now I can actually see the connection and how you can pivot in certain situations. Like you said, when the, the market crash happened in uh, 2008, you were able to yeah. take that and then just pivot into a different uh, avenue, you know, to, you know, to find success, you know? Yeah. Um, and do you think that it's something uh, that's like a necessary skill, especially in the kind of environment we're living in right now, you know, with automation, with uh, predictive algorithms that actually are yeah, yeah, yeah. guiding people's lives and AI coming into the situation. Do you think that it's a skill that, anybody or everybody should have to know how to pivot when they go head on with this future, not future. They actually in the background now, but they're going to be even more prominent in the future. Do you think that people should be aware and be able to pivot, you know, in the I mean, it's really, it's, it's really difficult because there's certain things you can pivot from and there's certain things. It's just like, you can't pivot. Yeah. Like there's certain, there's certain things you can go to school for for a very long time. And if that industry or business, you know, ceases to be, like I, it's very tough to pivot, you know? So I, I think there's, I think it's a good skill to have. I think it's good to try and be in a business where you can pivot. But I mean, imagine you were a, uh, I don't know, an NBA uh, ref mm-hmm. <laughs> right now. Um, you're probably being paid very well. 
I mean, you're not making millions of dollars, but you're, you're certainly making six figures. You're doing OK for yourself. Yeah. Um, but it's taken probably a long time for you to get there. You know, it's a real understanding of the game, the real understanding of how to be a referee and working your way up the ranks and lots of, you know, thankless jobs and, and mm-hmm. to be able to be in that full time job. And now what happens? You know, we're in a pandemic and you, you don't have a job anymore or you don't yeah. have an income for the like how how does somebody that spent their whole time learning how to be a referee for a professional sport and there's now no professional sport almost worldwide mm-hmm. you know you can't pivot from that so yeah i mean i think it's an amazing skill if you can you know if you're fortunate enough if you're lucky enough to kind of be in a space to be able to pivot yeah but i mean i guess an airline pilot be another one right like mm-hmm. oh yeah <laughs> you could take forever to, to to be an airline pilot right. and you know now now the the flights are down by 90 percent, 95 percent. i mean there's wow. you, you can't just okay you know you're not going to work for elon musk and, and flying you know so, you know spacex to mars and all that it's not a <laughs> yeah slightly different pivot so yeah you read about yeah. that my one of my friends actually he was featured on a podcast last week he's a coach you know he basically teaches the youth you know how to play soccer and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And he was working for a youth academy. And he, he noticed how things are going on with the whole COVID-19. And he, you know, he made that transition and then started teaching kids uh, virtually, right? I know certain things, like you said, being an airline pilot, you know, that's more difficult you know, to find a way <laughs> to do that, you know, in a virtual space. Some people, they, they always find a way. And I'm yeah. pretty sure in the past, you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's certain things that you felt like you weren't gonna pivot from you like okay i'm I'm stuck here but you you'd still middle way you know you still find a way well i mean yeah I, that's like you know yeah something gives right you yeah. know like, like you don't eat like it, at some point you don't eat right so like it, it you know it's it's a survival skill i think at some point just on a very basic level but yeah it's not easy i think a lot of us are i don't know i've, I've recently been working in kind of more corporate america which is very different than what i'm used to mm-hmm. um and it's it's different the, the risk assessment is very different. Um, people are very scared. If they, yeah. you know, talk to this person or do the, this, you know, they could get in trouble. But what they don't understand is like talking to that person or doing that thing is the thing that's going to get them to the next step, to the next level. <laughs> and so this, this, uh, this idea of risk in those spaces is very different um, for me. Yeah. Um, so I think there's like huge, I think there's huge opportunity in lots of spaces. So, yeah, I, I understand what, you know, what you, you meant by that. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. Like it, I don't know, the, almost the, the physics of it. I think in bigger organizations, they're just generally resistant to change. Yeah. And because bigger organizations are resistant to change, change is not incentivized. And so people that bring about change are, are, are not necessarily, you know, always rewarded. So if you're, if you're somebody that wants to be, you know, a risk taker and a changer and a mover, mm-hmm. the work you do isn't always cheered on. It's not always incentivized. You definitely right. And, and I think that kind of attitude can permeate a lot of bigger companies and a lot of bigger organizations where people are just scared. Like they just want to, they just want to pass. And I think that, you know, to really succeed, you need to be willing to fail. Yeah. Like <laughs> don't just pass, like take a risk, like go talk to that person that you weren't supposed to go, go give an idea to, to that, you know, senior VP that you talk to once over coffee, you know, th- those kind of things. Don't be scared, like make a mistake. You know, you got two choices. You don't do anything. You stay where you are. You, you make a mistake and okay, maybe you miss, mm-hmm. but then you learn something. And now next time you don't make a mistake, you know, you actually take two steps forward. So yeah, it's, it's been very interesting the past couple of years kind of watching and seeing people just 
very much afraid. <laughs> even, even even working in an industry that was not, you know, was very, very affected by COVID. It's just everybody was so worried about the things that didn't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, they're not going to be flights. The money is going down. Like, instead of us worrying about, you know, what's going on this week, mm-hmm. uh, maybe we should look a little further, you know, three months, six months, 12 months, through those kind of things. Like, fear always cloud critical thinking. So I know, I know exactly what yeah. you mean. It's interesting you, you brought that up because when I was uh, working for that company, I told you about, it's interesting to see how people, you know, at the office were driven by that fear. Oh, I have this idea, but I don't think my boss would like it. I'm like, wait, you know, how do you know? Just because uh, you try something in the past, they rejected it. Don't let that be the marker to stop you from challenging yourself, from growing as, exactly. you know, always push through you know that's what i did when i present something they like part of it they don't like part of it so i take the the positive part and then enhance that and then come back i don't say okay uh you know that's it i'm not gonna move forward they don't like my idea so what i do i take that that criticism that feedback and then find you know the positive points and then add that to my model and then go back out there and say, hey, you know, this is a new model. Yeah. What do you think? I'll say 60 to 70% of the time that I get some feedback that actually uh, get to a point where they approve my project or my model or my idea. So a lot of people, they just stop at the first no. Usually the first no is basically an opportunity to turn that into a yes. But some people, they, they get to the no, they're like, oh, okay, that, you know, that's a big cower. Yeah. Well, some people, some people don't even get to the no. Yeah. They don't even get to find the person to tell them yeah. no. They just get frustrated that like we hosted, I think a half a dozen, about five, six events. I, it wasn't for my job, but at my, we use the, the facilities, the very nice facilities they have in downtown yeah. Chicago. We use their facility to host a half a dozen different uh, events, uh, mostly revolved around um, data and technology mm-hmm. and, and diversity and inclusion and, you know, opportunities generally for people in Chicago that don't get opportunities. That was kind of what the events we, we did last year revolved mm-hmm. around. And every time I did an event, at least one person I worked with would come up to me and they would go, who, who set this up? Who did this for you guys? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it was just like one of these things where it's like, uh, we did, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, what do you mean? I was like, well, I emailed, you know, this person, I emailed that person. I didn't get a response. Mm-hmm. And so then I, I, I went up to their office and I knocked on the door and, you know, they said, go talk to the, and then I went and talked to this person. That person told me no. And then I, you know, this and that, and then, you know, eventually we just did it every, you know, it, then it became easy after we did the first one. Then we did the next one a month later and then two months later and a month later. And it like, that's, it was just so uncanny to me. And we were the only ones that were really doing like events after hours. There. Wow. And it was just so surprising to me because it's an amazing facility. Yeah. And I, you know, it, it was, it wasn't just an opportunity for, for employees to, you know, do things, but it was also an opportunity for the company um, to bring in talent. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, just, I, I was just amazed that more people didn't do that. Like have an idea, go do it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, going back to, you know, data management and data analytics, do you use like software that actually driven by AI? Yeah. At times it really depends on, on like the kind of project that my bread and butter, like yeah. the thing I'm really, I really have figured out is how to use data to support, you know, future decisions. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of, and sometimes that means, that means creating a model or a forecast, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes making a future decision, you don't need some crazy machine learning model. Mm-hmm. You just need to understand your data. You need to understand what happened last year. Mm-hmm. 
And I think a lot of businesses and a lot of companies don't necessarily understand their historical data. Mm. They're not even in a like great position to even predict things. I, I think kind of AI and machine learning and a lot of that is um, it's really overstated. Mm-hmm. I think um, a, a lot more people and companies would do a better job just understanding their their business and understanding their business through data. And you know, not just you know what not just what happened today, but what happens on you know every Sunday. You know, is what's the difference between this Sunday at nine o'clock and that Sunday at nine o'clock? You know, really understanding what kind of um, seasonality your, your business has. You know, what, what what kind of you know elasticities does your business have? Mm-hmm. Well, this is my target market. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you know the twenty to thirty eight. You know, between this this range and that range, shops here like rethink that. Mm-hmm. You know, is there is there another is there another market that would be open to your business? And you can find those insights through data. And none of those insights necessarily can you ask the computer to figure out for you. Mm, I see what you mean. So I, I, I think, I, I think, yeah, there's a fear of like automating jobs. I mean, I automate things. Mm, okay. I'm lazy. <laughs> I don't like doing the same thing over and over again. So I teach my computer to do those things. I don't want to do every single day. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But then what happens is, is like, I, it, you know, so like I've got 10 reports that I run mm-hmm. every day and I could manually, you know, drag and drop and save and mm-hmm. load and do all that stuff in each one of those 10 reports. And I could spend my whole day, right? Or I can teach my computer to run the 10 reports. I can go get coffee. Mm-hmm. I can sit down and now I can look at the outputs of those 10 okay, reports. And now I've got seven hours to do lots more. Okay. You know, I, I can, I can schedule a meeting. I can, I can, I can talk. I can, you know, I can maybe, is there, is there, is there, an, is there some, some fault in the way I'm bringing these reports together? Is there a bug? Yeah. Do these numbers even make sense? And I think we spend so much time just like busy, busy, busy. You know, we, we just don't spend enough time thinking. And so that's kind of, I think, the value of data and data science is it, it frees up time. Yeah. I see. You know, instead of having like five analysts doing busy work, program the five analysts busy work mm-hmm. and, and, and ask them to think critically. Like, let the, let the, let the computer do the, do the heavy lifting. I see what you mean. So, yeah. Yeah, it's... I, I think it's just there's such a misnomer and there's such a fear when there doesn't need to be, you know, wow. it's like a car, right? Like a car is a great, is a great, great piece of machinery. Mm-hmm. It makes the world a lot smaller, yeah. which allows you to <laughs> move around and, 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 and be more, be more effective in whatever you want to do. And I don't think data and data science and AI and machine mm-hmm. learning is all that different. Okay. I see. But there's fear because, you know, people, people, a lot of their job is busy work, you know, mm-hmm. and there, there's <laughs> back, back to that fear we were talking about a little while ago. So yeah, that's actually, uh, you know, to be honest with you, that's one of the fears that I have. And me and my co-host, we always talk about that here on the podcast. Basically, certain companies are out there using data to basically benefit themselves, you know, to to beat last quarter. Right. So when when mm-hmm. you have that model, like you basically you're removing, you know, your end user, you know, from from the process. So basically, if you're using a free app, you are the product. So that. Mm-hmm you know, that ethical aspect of data management or data analytics. And when you throw in machine learning and AI, there's got to be a way for the end user to actually have some say or some power over how his or her data is being used. I think most people have made the decision that they're fine giving up um, their privacy <laughs> and their security and all of that. They have for- no choice, right? <laughs> For an, for, an, for an extra bag of chips, basically. I mean, like that's that's kind of been, you know, nobody questioned when when I mean, 
think about how many things that we sign up for on a weekly basis and we don't we don't read the the end user you know agreement do we yeah you're right about that yeah yeah you know and we're like wow this service is great it's you know we sign up for something online and we don't you know we give them an email address it's not free <laughs> like we're giving them information they're you know they're tracking our cookies on that website like there's so many things that they're looking at right so i i just find it fascinating that um how open people are, how willing people are to just like forego their privacy for some sort of value. Okay. I see. I see what you mean. Um, so I, like, I, I kind of, um, I'm not saying there's not value to people like, you know, being worried about their privacy mm -hmm. and things like that with, you know, some of the more advanced models being able to like put together some of this metadata mm -hmm. and really like, kind of like triangulate things that you might not, you know, you know, might not be apparent in the data. Right. Yeah. So you can't be specifically identified, but with some, you know, smart learning and, and meta enough metadata, we can figure out exactly who you are and identify you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, as that as that customer or whatever. But I don't know. I feel like people have given up so much privacy that that's almost a moot point. Okay. So do you think that there's some responsibilities on the end user also to do their homework to keep tabs on what they're giving up um, when they sign up for a service? Exactly. Like that's like, exactly that. To me, that's the whole thing. Like. You like people going, oh, machine learning and this and you know, AI, everything, all these things are taking over. It's like, yeah, but like you have your phone that you bring with you everywhere that has a microphone that you've like you you take camera and pictures of everything. You know, you put all these things on social media for these companies to to make, you know, tens of millions of dollars on advertisements and things like this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're okay giving that away for free. Like, why does this why why is this special? You know what I mean? That that's kind of the question I ask is because I, I don't I I'm yet to really speak to people mm -hmm. that 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 truly truly are care are paranoid about their their kind of data privacy or their data footprint. Mm -hmm. I mean, go ahead, ask 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 somebody. Like, do you have a Facebook account? And I'm not trying to say something bad about Facebook mm -hmm. as a company, but like, you put all your things on on their website. All of your personal information is on yep. their website. You are, and, and I'm one of the few people that does not have an account there. And people look at me like, "Oh, what do you mean you don't have one?" <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, what do you mean you put all you, you give all your privacy away to this company? Yeah. Like, like though, to me, that's it. And I just, it, you know, if, if, if we're going to complain about privacy, I just, I think that the first question we need to be asking is, you know, why are we so okay giving away all privacy to whether it's, you know, a social media company or, you know, um, for a free email account or, or all these things. I think people don't think about that. Okay. Do you realize how much information you give away just by using Gmail? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're right about that. Uh-huh. Yeah, it seems it's it just seems hypocritical to like like have a Gmail account and a Facebook and then complain about data privacy. That's just yeah, I I see where you're coming from. You know, there's a responsibility from the user, but at the same time, don't you think that if these companies are not gonna do it, they're not gonna say, hey, you know what, we're gonna kind of like uh, see through your data and then get what we want and leave the rest. They're gonna take everything because the metadata might be useful for them in the future when they have the technology to actually mine that deeper. So one stream of data, there's multiple source of values you can extract with. It's something that you know that's a basic thing. But do you think that since Facebook won't do it, Facebook won't say, you know what, we're not gonna take everything. We're just gonna take what we need to support a model. Do you think this would be like a third party, like a non-affiliated third party to come in and to monitor and regulate? Uh, Facebook and the retro well, space. Of course, I mean, like, of course, like, of course, it should yeah. be monitored. But I mean, like, I don't know. We could really get down a wormhole here because it's like, whose whose responsibility is that to monitor? It's the people, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, it's this, it's this weird kind of juxtaposition, mm -hmm. right? So the people that are the ones that are being um, taken advantage mm -hmm. of, 
or their privacy is being violated, right? We're, let's make the argument people's privacy is being violated. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the argument. Um, so they can say, no, social media company, I'm not going to let you have my free stuff. I'm not going to let you have my information for free, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and people generally haven't done that. They've not made that decision. Some people have, but most people have. Right? So then what the people can do as a collective is they have a government that speaks for them and the government comes in and goes, okay, you can't, you know, you can't abuse the, the, the people. Right. Um, but the problem is the, the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the government's in the same pocket, you know, as, as the social media company. Right. So, so you have these kind of weird kind of relationships. So, I mean, I don't know. There is, there is market forces. I think if, if people d- stopped using something because they felt it was hazardous, mm-hmm. people like a company would change, change their way. I mean, we've seen that time and time again in businesses, right? We've, we've seatbelts. Like mm-hmm. at one point there was a car that didn't have a seatbelt, right? There's airbags. At one point there was a car that didn't have an airbag. Okay. I see what you're right. Mean. I mean, um, it, 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 at some point you could smoke on an airplane and now you can no longer smoke on an airplane because the people said, no, this is not mm-hmm. okay. This is making us sick, right? It's not healthy. I mean, collectively as a people, we've not said that we've not said collecting all my data and all my, you know, exactly where I move every day while you track me around on this cell mm-hmm. phone, you know, that I'm okay with that. Okay. I see. You know, because it gives me, it gives me a certain convenience and I like the convenience and things it gives me. So I, I think, I don't know. I think collectively as a society, we've made, we've made a decision that it's just not important that it like, we're, we're willing to accept the invasion to our privacy. I'll give you another mm-hmm. one. That's really interesting. Here's, here's an invasion of privacy that I would pay for. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would pay tens and thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in mm-hmm. the future for this specific invasion of privacy. All right. So um, we, we have a huge problem with, with COVID mm-hmm. and, 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 getting back to normal right now because there's not a vaccine there's not a way to know if anybody's sick or not mm-hmm. right so one of the ways we could we could figure out where we could go is to create some sort of system on people's cell phones and that system would have you know and i, I didn't create this i've read about this recently mm-hmm. i can't recall where i read it so i'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just I'm stealing somebody else's idea here this is not my idea um but we could, in our cell phones you could have a, a status a covid 19 mm-hmm. status and that status would be one of three things it would be green Green means that you've been isolated in quarantine mm-hmm. and are, are not sick and are not at risk of affecting anyone else. Mm-hmm. Okay. Second, you could be yellow. Yellow means that you interacted with somebody who was infected and you may be infected, but you're not showing symptoms. You're asymptomatic. Yeah. Red, you are, um, you are in fact infected and you are showing symptoms. Now, if everybody had this system on their mm-hmm. cell phone, right? We could have some sort of bigger tracker and we would be able to see exactly who's infected, who's not affected, who's green, who's safe and who's not safe. Mm-hmm. To be around. I would pay an insane amount of money for that yeah, because that would allow me to go outside on my deck and, and barbecue. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> that would allow me to go, go play tennis. That would allow me to go to the bar. If everybody that passed that check that had that green you know, light on their cell phone in their pocket um, was all deemed safe. Yeah, you, right? you're um, right. You're right about that. Uh, it's in a perfect world, you know, that sounds great. But who, the person, the company, the corporation is in charge of that data. Oh, here we go. Like, what, what are they going to do with it? You know, so it goes back to that again. Here we know? go. I'm, again, and that's like, <laughs> yep, in a perfect yeah. world, that's, but in a, in, in, in a perfect society, we don't have a problem with that, mm-hmm. right? The reason we don't have a problem with that, the reason we do have a problem with that is we don't trust the people in the society, yeah. right? Yeah. We don't trust the people collecting the data, but we trust them enough. Like we trust them to, to give them everything that we put on our social media. Yeah. But the thing is, I think, I think what happened to, it comes about educating the masses too, because 
like a lot of the stuff that we give out, let's say 10 years ago, like these are things I would type in and give out online, but now I don't do it anymore because I'm more informed. So I think it comes down to informing, you know, the masses, the people on how to basically protect themselves virtually because a lot of these uh, technologies, a lot of these, these uh, innovations are so new that even the people that are actually collecting the data, not, they don't even know what to do with it. You know, so it's interesting to see yeah. not only we don't know as the end user, we don't know what to do to protect ourselves, but even the people that are actually collecting it, they are missing certain things and they are violating their own uh, privacy policies by doing certain things. You know, going back to um, Edward Stoneen, that's what he was basically saying, that why you collect, you know, data from people without even having like a, a specific idea or direction you're just collecting everything you know why so that's yeah. what the that's what the issue is that's what i think about sometimes like even you know like uh, facebook google you know they know what they're collecting to a certain point but at the deeper level they are still trying to figure this thing out too yeah. yeah, but there's interesting yeah. things like why 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 are they allowed to use your your like if you upload and use their their servers to you know save your, your pictures of your dog, mm-hmm. you know they they now I I don't know what the exact contract is, but I mean like basically that they have free use of your dog yeah. or the picture yeah, of your exactly. dog. Mm-hmm. Like why is that? You know if 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 I put my car on the interstate, the interstate doesn't have free use of my car now because I use the interstate. It's <laughs> still my car. Yeah, yeah, you're right. These rules that are okay until they're not okay anymore. Yeah, and so that that like that like I think there's an interesting question um, when it specifically when it comes to the tech companies and, and social media of like what if, what service are they providing and what does that give them um, access to? Yes, you're right. You know, like it's like you you think about um, like collective labor, right? So you know, as, as collective labor, we are not going to let the the management or the owners mm-hmm. you know take advantage of us. Um, but when you think of collective labor in a, in a sense of social media, we don't really think like that. But if all the all the users of you know, whatever, <laughs> holy, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever, whatever social media company, right? If all the users said, "No, you don't get to own my pictures. No, you don't get to own my videos. Mm-hmm. You're just you're just the channel in which I share them through, but you don't own them." Mm-hmm. You know that collective labor would have the the ability to say, you know, we're going to take our business elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we don't have that. Like, and so that, like, these are these, like, these are questions I think, I mean, there's like very much 21st century questions of like, you know, what, what, who owns, who owns these yeah, things? Like, and just because you've set up this website, well, why do you own my <laughs> pictures? Why do you own my videos? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's a really good question. Uh, that's the issue with uh, Twitter right now. You know, like who gets to decide who to ban or not for certain things that they do on Twitter? Jack Dorsey, Jack Dorsey, right? So, like, <laughs> so that that authority, right, within a platform that I use, like, uh, you know, some of it falls on uh, under the policies. You know, I can understand there's certain things you can do, but sometimes I think they put those policies aside for it could be political, well, of course, political do. reason or affiliation reasons, right, to go after certain people. So, if, well, you there are. Um... There are very specific rules in um, in Germany that came down, you know, to ensure they do not witness another rise like they did under Hitler. Yeah. 
very different to to the you know to the U.S. You know, you, you would you would never see a Nazi flag mm-hmm. um, in Germany the way that you see them here, yeah. um, which is you know it, it's very interesting. But there's there's specific laws against mm-hmm. that, right? And on Twitter specifically, um, there are more filters that ban more tweets and more images in Germany. Wow. Than they do here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they, they've, you know, they, they like you said, they've, you know, Jack Dorsey and Twitter's made a decision to allow certain things. I, I read recently that, you know, um, if they were to filter out things as stringent as, you know, people request, that would force them to be removing um, a lot of commentary from right wing politicians in this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. And you kind of ask yourself, why is something that our politicians in this country deems by Twitter okay in this country. Mm-hmm. But if the same poli- if the same politicians in Germany went to to convey that message, it's illegal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean these the, these these questions or it's like these these companies are bigger than a country, yeah. right? Like 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 literally. So wh- why is it one set of rules for Germany and another set of rules for the US? Yeah, uh, you're right about that. You know, you, yeah, when you go back in history, Alan Turing, he's actually one of my heroes, yeah. right? Basically to me, he's the father of uh, computer science or AI, even, you know, data analysis. How do you predict certain outcomes and uh, deciphering code and all that stuff? So, so basically, what he did, he looked into, you know, the historical context of the data that he was collecting to help, you know, stop, you know, the Nazi army, right? To stop Hitler. And it's interesting to see you know, looking at stuff now, looking at how, you know, let's say Twitter or Facebook, the way they do things now, like all the data they're collecting, it's not for greater good. It's for their own good. You know, that's what the, that's what doesn't sit well with me sometimes, right? I know it's a business, they have to make money, but shouldn't you, when you have a business, shouldn't you be uh, giving service to better humanity or is that not required? No, you, know you shouldn't. No, I actually, no, you shouldn't. As a business, that's that's not your job. You, you shouldn't be ethical as a business. You don't. No, no, I'm not saying you shouldn't be ethical, but your job yeah. is not to be altruistic. Okay. Like if if you if you know if you sell widgets, your job is to sell the most widgets. Mm-hmm. Um, there needs to be regulation that forces you to 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 sell those widgets in a way that that doesn't harm society. And I mm-hmm. don't think it's fair to put like the onus of of regulation self-regulation has never happened as far as i know in the history of 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 humanity not Mm -hmm. in an effective way so i think i i think yes i mean like i I think you should take care of your people i think you should not Mm -hmm. pollute i think you should you know leave the leave the world a better place than you found it right like i believe all those things yeah Um, but but the reality is if if i'm running a company and the difference is my employees are maybe polluting in this river i don't know maybe i pollute a little bit because mm-hmm. I care about my fam- I, I care about the families of my, and I've made the decision that you know what my the families that that work for me may, are more important than the pollution in the river. Mm-hmm. But like the thing is, that's not my decision to make. That's that's society's decision as a whole to make. And so I think mm-hmm. that you know we we don't like there's this obvious you know push right now for anti regulation, and probably you know I was born in eighty one. To to be honest, coming in with Reagan, I think there's there's been a huge push for anti regulation probably for the past forty years. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a huge mistake. Should these companies be more ethical? 100%. But it, it, the, people aren't going to self-regulate. 
within reason. Like, don't, you know, if, if I buy a burger, you know, don't, don't throw some, you know, rat meat in it, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. like, to make sure, like, you know, because it was cheaper and you could make a couple bucks more. Like, like obviously, I think those are the kind of things, like, you can avoid. Don't, don't do the most evil things. But mm-hmm. I think there's lots of difficult decisions businesses have to make every single day. And it's, it's unfair to, to expect them to do it in a way that's going to most benefit or is, you know, most safe for the rest of society. Oh, okay. I see what you mean. Like certain businesses, they are actually in the business of, we know the lobbyists go to, you know, go to Washington and then try to influence, you know, the system as a whole. And then do you think that uh, the capitalistic model is in conflict with uh, the humanistic model? Do you think that's, that's what the issue is? Basically, to make the most capital, like you're going to have to cut certain corners and you're going to have I mean, to I, <laughs> open the roads a little bit, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like you, you get to like, you know, politics. Like I, I'm a student mm-hmm. of, of people like Howard Zinn, Angela Davis and, and Jonathan mm-hmm. Kogel. You know, yeah. um, I'm about as anti-capitalist as it gets, regardless mm-hmm. of, you know, I, I do what I have to do to, to, you know, survive, you know, as we kind of talked about the whole survivalist nature. But yeah. I mean, capitalism is terrible. Let's, let's just be honest. Um, there's winners and losers. And like at every point where we've seen some sort of, you know, welfare to kind of save the economy, all we've done is, is see larger separation between the richest and poorest. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that was in, you know, the 80s or 90s or, or you know, 2008 or what's going to happen coming out of this latest recession. Yeah. Well, wow. like capitalism does not does not serve the people at all. Yeah, you're right. You know, it's, 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 you know I, I think you can regulate it in a way that maybe makes it more humanistic, but it, it's a, like, as it's implemented right now, it's a terrible system. I mean, it's, it justifies American imperialism, if we're going to be honest about it. Oh, yeah. Like, what makes the current United States better than the, the old British Empire? You know, it was the old thing. <laughs> the, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Does the mm. sun ever set on the American Empire? I mean, there's there's bases and and you know military equipment all over the world. I think I think there's there's systems way better than this. I remember when I was a student at Florida State, I was studying anthropology, mm-hmm. and I was very very interested in in many uh, native native civilizations, specifically those here here in America. Um, mm-hmm. the, everything was not you know necessarily uh, one way. <laughs> you know this this idea that the the man is the breadwinner and and. You know, he goes to the man goes to another family to find a woman and like, all, like, that, like, read, <laughs> read about the natives of this land mm-hmm. and they'll offend you on whatever you thought, you know, down is up and up is down. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wish I remember some more details about that. There's there's one thing that really has stuck with me for, for 20 years. I remember reading back then. Um, there's a there's a native society um, or was. You know, who knows, you know, the, the, yeah. the colony killed them all off. But um, at yeah. one point, oh, there, right. was, um, there was or is, you'd go into somebody's home or, or domestic, you know, place of living. Mm-hmm. And it was, you would never ask for something to drink. Hmm. Like, you would never do that. Um, it was considered, you know, very, a uh, huge faux pas if you were to ask somebody for something. Mm-hmm. If that per- and there's a reason for it. Because if, if the person had it. Um, they would automatically have offered you a drink. If they oh, did not have it, if they did not have it, they would not have offered it. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the 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 culture was, you know, to not ask because it was already going to be given to you if that person could provide it. Wow. And, it, and that just struck me as something like very simple. Yeah. yeah. Yet very, you know, to use your word, humanistic. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and that stuck with me for a very, 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 very long time. And it, it's something that kind of bothers me here. I don't think we think <laughs> in those terms. I think yeah, we you're think right. in I and me terms, not, you know, I'm lucky to have you as a guest in my house. Let me provide something for you. But if I can't, you know not to ask me out of respect for the fact that I can't. Yeah. Because, like, it, it's just that, I don't know, it's, it's very simple yet very big and amazing all at the same time. Yeah, it is. It's almost like a, like a social contract that is unsaid, right? You don't have Absolutely. to. Yeah, that's amazing. Like, one thing, uh, I am a big fan of, uh, you probably heard of him, uh, Terrence McKenna. No, like he's a ethnobotanist. Like he basically used to um, experiment with like uh, mushrooms and you know acid and DMT and all that stuff. He used to go <laughs> yeah. and the Amazon, and he he's a big proponent for uh, psychedelics and how to use them to actually better the society because mushroom or psilocybin can actually cure PTSD and a lot of mental disorders, right? So he was basically the pioneer of doing research with mushrooms and all that stuff, uh, uh, you know, for, for the betterment of society, you know. and then do, to, do, do, you, yeah. do, do you know if there's any connection there to Carlos Castaneda? Yeah, Carlos Castaneda, yeah, he, that's, really, that's actually uh, one person he mentioned, and I read some of, some of his books uh, and all that stuff too. So there, there's a connection okay. uh, for the movement, yeah, with Carlos Castaneda, yeah. Carlos Castaneda is, you want a book that'll blow your... Blow your hair back. Um, the book, the name of the book escapes me, but he's talking exactly about this. He he takes an anthropological approach to doing lots of drugs. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I think I, I read that book too. I think I read that because I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of his work. It, I want to I want to stick on that point real because I think there's a we're talking about this kind of different different cultures, right, and different societies. Mm-hmm. I, I, there's there's a point from Carlos Castaneda. I want to I want to mm-hmm. kind of point out it's it's this very Eastern versus Western kind of philosophy. And I apologize mm-hmm. for cutting you off. It's just it's you okay. made me think about it. and I haven't thought about this in like probably 15 years, 20 years. <laughs> um, so at, at one point, Carlos Castaneda, he's doing all these you know psychedelic drugs with with mm-hmm. um, the shaman. And the shaman yeah. is, you know, kind of guiding his, 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 his spiritual experience. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so he does these, you know, whether it's peyote or whatever psychedelic he does. Mm-hmm. And he, Carlos Castaneda describes being a bird. He, he describes oh, yeah. flying and he describes how his vision changed. He no longer mm-hmm. saw like a man. He didn't see the things in front of him. He, he, his eye, he, he saw the things, um, his, uh, peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. Um, was amazing and he was able to see and, and, and fly and do all these things mm-hmm. and then he kind of sobers back up and he asked the shaman he goes, so 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 shaman did, did I turn into a bird did you could you see me fly you know and and the shaman was very confused mm-hmm. he was what do you mean you just told me that you were flying your vision changed like all of these things right mm-hmm. like why are you asking me a question that you just gave me the answer to <laughs> and it's like in that lies the difference between Eastern and Western philosophy, right? And the yeah. Western philosopher says, well, you have to scientifically prove it to me. I need a picture. I need a video. I need to have, it needs to be on Instagram. Show me mm-hmm. I was a bird, right? Yeah. Um, but the Eastern philosophy is very experiential. Mm-hmm. I felt I became a bird. Therefore, I became a bird. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know that there's a right and wrong. I just, that it was, I remember reading that and that was just one of these moments where you just, you realize like you've been indoctrinated and encultured to think a certain way for so long, you know, like even, even if you're 15 or 20, when you read this for the first time, yeah, I just think it's fascinating. There's a different way of existing. Yeah, you're right. You're right about that. And, uh, I think, uh, for Carlos Castaneda, I read, uh, 
the teaching of Don Juan. That's the book that I read from. Yeah, that that's the yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So going back to Terrence McKenna, like he he has a connection to him, and then he actually quotes a lot of stuff from uh, from that book. He was saying that when he went into Amazon to do uh, like a DMT or ayahuasca uh, ceremony. So basically, he got into a village. You know, they introduced him to the elder in the village, and he was talking to to him. And then he quickly noticed that they don't have the concept of ownership. Like everything belongs to everybody in that tribe, right? Yeah. So the word yours or mine doesn't exist. Yeah. It's ours, right? So this is our bowl. This is our spoon. This is our cup. His- so that, that's another way. That's something you said, like you mentioned, that stuck with me. So I wish that in, in America we had more of that mentality where we see everything, you know, to be ours. There's no, when you look at things that way, when you look at life that way, you don't feel like there's a scarcity. You don't have to compete for anything. Yeah. Everything belongs to, to everybody. And you take care of everything better and you pay more attention to people, to your community. You know, that's what I wanted to mention to add to, to what you said. No, you're, but you're, you're hundred percent. There's a truth to that. Right. I mean, yeah. This whole ridiculousness of like opening the economy back up, like the economy is not something to be open or closed. Exactly. You know, it's, the economy is supply and demand. And when people do not feel safe um, to go outside, there will be no demand. We can try and have ownership and we can try and say me and mine and, you know, this isn't yours and you're not allowed and you can't afford this. And like, oh, we can create all these walls. Right. But like mm-hmm. that wealth disappears without each other. Like that, that, the Wealth is, is an interdependence. Like you cannot, exactly. you cannot become wealthy on an, on a deserted island by yourself. Like that, exactly. it requires others. And 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 until mm-hmm. like we collectively kind of figure that thing out, you know, there's more dark and difficult days ahead. You know. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, me and my brother, we were actually talking about that the other day. Like people are just realizing how connected we are and how important we are to each other. Right. So when one sector is not moving. It's, it's affecting the other sector, right? So when planes can't fly, certain people can't work. And these people that we sometimes don't even look at when we're at an airport, right? These people become super important because we want them to come back to work. We want things to happen again. Hopefully, after this, uh, this pandemic, we realize that we need each other. We are more connected. No, I, I, uh, I, 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 yeah. I completely agree. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I like to think I do the right thing whenever I can, but like, I've noticed myself like I go to the grocery store mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm extra thankful to the cashier, you know, and anybody that's kind of like in, in my building, you know, there's there's extra cleaning people now. You know, three months ago, I would have I would have said hi. I'm not rude. You know, I always say hi to people. But, you know, I make it a point to thank them now every time I see them. Yeah. And, I, you know, it, it's difficult to like like because I have to look in the mirror and go, well, why didn't you thank them three months ago? Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. You know, and I think, you know, even even everybody amongst us that thinks they're so righteous and they do everything the right way and whatever, like like look yourself in the mirror and like what what how have you changed? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's so many <laughs> yeah. things I could point out that people and companies and you know government officials are doing wrong, but like what did you do wrong? What did I do wrong? Yeah. You know exactly. what I mean? Like 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 how many times did you sit in line and you were irritated because the, the person in line was too slow or the cashier or whatever? Mm-hmm. And and it's like just realize if, if that person now decides not to come, like you don't eat. Yeah. Like I, I have such a respect for like like even grocery shopping right now. 
Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Like it's like the simplest, but like not even just like yes, the people, but like when can I go? You yeah. know, I'm I, I'm I'm in great shape. I'm in great health. You know, my 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 fear is not that I'm gonna get sick. My fear is that I'm gonna make somebody else sick. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, what's the right? What should I be doing? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. things. So. Yeah, you're right. Uh, going back to I'm um, quoting Gandhi. You know, be the change that you want to see in the world. You know, it always starts with you. And then when you touch somebody in a positive way, most likely they're going to try to reciprocate that, you know, even if they don't do it the same day or tomorrow, yeah. maybe a year from now. So going back to uh, technology, uh, what do you think the future of uh, data management or data analysis is? You know? <laughs> That's I, I a big know, question. Like it, like, <laughs> I, I hope it's more real world things. Like, I want to see less Ubers and Lyfts and DoorDashes and all that junk. Like, honestly, I just like that's not data. Data is not like using data to like exploit drivers. Like, that's not data. Okay, I'm going to pick on rideshare for a second. Like, that's Mm -hmm. like they took a a service that was provided and and now they they force somebody to use their own car. And, you know, they're paying them ridiculously low wages. Right. That's data. That's data in action. Right. That's data. And, you know, venture capitalism and all this, these things in action. But like, like, does that thing actually have value? You know, and that and and, and so I I don't know if that's answering your question, but like, I I hope that like data is applied to things that actually have value. You know, um, I I moved out to the Bay Area here about six months ago and I've been, you know, going through a job search. And and, and that was kind of one of the things that I'm not going to just work somewhere that's just like building something that's not that's that's an exploitive system because they can. Mm -hmm. And I think I think there's a lot of data solutions that do that. Yeah, it's like, how, how can how can we pay the lowest worker less? Mm, right that that that's yeah. what like a lot of the gig economy is revolved around it's it's about mm-hmm. like how can we undercut the undercut the worker mm-hmm. like look at like airbnb is another perfect example like airbnb inflated the rental market in every city wow airbnb made it more made it more unaffordable to, to rent a house think oh about it you, okay look look at my building there's there's 100 units in the building five of them are, are airbnb right mm-hmm. That limits the that limits the supply. Yeah. What happens wow. in a situation where there's limited supply? Pr- price goes up. This is like yeah. you know economics one on one. One on one, yeah. Uh huh. And so you start thinking about this on on a bigger scale. Like, what was the percentage of Airbnb within it within a city within a community? Mm-hmm. You know, does it, how much did that make that community you know less affordable? Mm-hmm. And to me, like these are terrible, terrible applications of. And I'm not saying they're applic- like the businesses in themselves aren't applications of data, but they use they highly use data and data aggregation. Um, yeah. data management you know what i mean like look at look at airbnb mm-hmm. if you were if i had my apartment and i had to like list that on my own like i wouldn't mm-hmm. be able to do that like the fact yeah. that there's an airbnb allows me to do that so mm. i don't know i'd like to see data apply to things that are more important um i one of the things uh there's a huge problem in chicago with with twitter and social media mm-hmm. and what happens is you know uh, when i was younger um a lot of gang members wore different colors and put their hats certain ways and they drove through certain areas and, you know, mm-hmm. da 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 K, this love, kill of that, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it was a way of, of disrespecting each other and from different neighborhoods and different blocks. Yeah. Um, well, since we've had the invention of social media, what we see is that ha- those things, those occurrences happening on Facebook and Twitter. Wow. And literally people getting into gang beefs over, you know, over t- and people literally being killed because wow. of things they've tweeted out. 
So there's the whole there's I was watching a documentary a couple of weeks ago. There's a whole area of forensic data science on on monitoring Twitter for wow. the kinds of messages that are going to lead to gun violence and stopping the gun violence before it happens. Unbelievable. Now this that's is- the, like the, like like I was like I want to do that. Like that sounds amazing. Yeah. Like that's a data science project that's like worth your time. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like yeah. Versus this you is- know building the the next price model for Uber or whatever. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, so basically, you saving lives. You know, this is kind of like a precursor to Minority Report. I don't know if you saw that movie, like that, <laughs> yeah. that technology, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. like uh, you're right. You can use the data to to uh, benefit the people, right? You can use the data to save lives, and well, instead of using it to make not money. To spend money. We've yeah. decided not to spend money doing that. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. the venture capitalists are not supporting that. They're supporting, you know, exploiting drivers because that's where we put our value. Unfortunately. Wow, man. So uh, going back to what you said earlier, so the whole system is a loop that's connected and based on the decision that the data providers or the people that are getting mined, you know, it, when if they're smart enough to say, hey, we don't want that to happen again, then we can move the in- incentives to a different spot, you know, in society. And then those companies will have no choice to follow suit. So there's this huge problem in college athletics, and it's not the athlete's problem. Don't get me wrong. It's not like it, they they're suffer because of it, but they're not the ones to solve the problem. But they could. They wear Nike and Adidas and all these logos on their shoes, on their shirts, on their pants. And then they, mm-hmm. they get on TV. Right. And they don't get paid for this. Right. The coaches yeah. get paid millions of dollars. You know, they, they sell all these tickets. They sell the merchandise. They sell the beers. They sell the hot dogs. They sell the fries, the chips, the parking. Mm-hmm. You know, but these 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 kids. And, and not only that, you know, they oh they get an education. No, they don't get an education. They, you know, they, they're taking advanced gym in many cases, right? Like wow. they don't have the, they don't have the time and ability to focus on a full-time, you know, football, basketball career at college and a, you know, full-time academic career. Yeah, that's tough. And then if we're being honest, a lot of them aren't there because they're academically capable. They're there because they're athletically capable, right? Yeah. But so if we, if we took these athletes, right. And all of them collectively said, you know what, I'm not going to wear my Nike. I'm going to take a piece of tape and I'm going to put that tape over the Nike on my Jersey. And every mm-hmm. single athlete in that school, in that conference, in that league did that. Mm-hmm. Nike would then come back at the school and say, hey, North Carolina, your players were not wearing the Nike that we're forcing them to wear. Mm-hmm. Now you force the conversation. Oh, well, how do you not pay the players that are branded athletes for you? Yeah, that's it's, it's very it's, it's very cut and dry. But the thing is, like a single athlete isn't willing to do that. Right. That, like as a group. You know, none of us are kind of willing to do that. At least, I don't know. I haven't seen much much evidence of in my lifetime. Yeah, um, but the power exists. You know, if we're willing to to exert it. Yeah, you're right. If we if we're willing to come together and uh, don't be so divided, we can actually uh, change a lot of things. Yeah, you, yeah. you're definitely right about that. And uh, one thing that I wanted to ask you too, like, do you think that uh, a lot of a lot of players those athletes are not seeing, you know, how much, you know, they actually are bringing in, right? That's, they're actually outside of that loop. And then, even if they did, they are so focused on getting to the professional league, you know, they're not worried about, hey, uh, I don't have that data in front of me, so outside of mind. Do you think that they should have kind of like, a, like an assistant or like a mentor or somebody or consultant that say, hey, you know, based on your performance this week, this is how much money you made for Nike or for the school. 
Do you think yeah, that course, because I mean, they're not? They should, but yeah. nobody's incentivized to give them that. Why would it? Yeah. Why? If you're exploiting somebody, why would you give them the tool to stop their exploitation? No, it's got to be some, you know, somebody who's not affiliated, right? Like a, but, like an outside source. That, but that that kind of goes to the, the the point I think is that they're so exploited. There's nobody there to to, to speak up for the athlete. Oh man, yeah, you're right. It, it's you tough, know what man. I mean? Like like it's yeah. nobody's job to to make sure they're not exploited. I watched, yeah. I don't know if you've seen Hoop Dreams. It's from the, you know, the, the early yeah. 90s in Chicago. And uh-huh. it's so amazing. I forget the young man's name, but they, he initially starts at St. Joe's. And the way that that young man and his family from the Cabrini Green Housing Projects were exploited to go to that school. He couldn't graduate from a public school in Chicago mm-hmm. because he couldn't get his transcript from a Catholic school that told him he was going to be the superstar. He had, his family had to pay like hundreds of dollars in order to get his transcripts. Yeah. Like, how insane is that? You you went and you went and got this kid from the projects and said, hey, man, <laughs> we're going to make you into the next Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. Like, literally, that's what they told him. They actually told him. Actually, no, they didn't say Michael Jordan. They said, we're going to make you the next Isaiah Thomas because Isaiah yeah. Thomas went to St. Joe's. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they introduced these young men to Isaiah Thomas. And wow. then they told their parents, like, you know, we can't give them a full scholarship, but we'll give them some. You know, we just need you to contribute a little bit. And then wow. when the young man didn't turn out to be Isaiah Thomas and he couldn't afford his school bill anymore, what happened? He left and the kid, the, his parents and the projects had to pay the bill. And wow. even though the young man did end up graduating from and going on to college, mm-hmm. he, his parents still had to go back to that Catholic school and pay them their extortion, excuse me, pay them their tuition money. Uh, yeah, you're right. I think his name was William Gates, right? Yeah, William Gates. Yeah. That's not yeah. that, uh, the the other one. William Gates is the one he graduated from St. Joe. Um, okay, the one that went to Marshall. Uh, Arthur Ag. I want to say his yeah. name. Yeah, yeah, Arthur Ag. Yeah, you're right. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah, that that's sad, man. Yeah, that's that's the system. That's the country we live in, man. And like you said, I hope that you know the technology in the future is used to benefit the people you know that's that's my only fear you know i know certain services we need to survive like amazon is a necessary evil you know what i'm saying but i i strongly disagree <laughs> with that but <laughs> you know <laughs> i've completely stopped any purchase purchases uh from amazon i don't from order amazon. from amazon i won't shop at whole foods i i can in good faith shop somewhere where the, the person that runs the business is on the verge of being a trillionaire and refuses to give his employees medical care that they need. Medical you know, care. Yeah. And, and honestly, initially, um, when COVID first starting, I stopped ordering from Amazon because they weren't taking, taking care of people being sick in the warehouses. And my wow. concern was not selfishly. It wasn't about the people in the warehouse. It was for me. I did not want a box coming with that that had COVID on it. That was my concern. And so I, yeah. I haven't ordered from Amazon in months. And I, I will not go back to order from Amazon. I, I'll pay more. I'll wait longer. It's, it's not worth it. Yeah, yeah. I see what you mean, man. Yeah, that, that's a whole different ballgame, the, the Amazon story. Like, you know, what's happening and where it's, where his, you know, where Amazon is going and how powerful uh, that company well, but, is, but, you know? but Pierre, let me ask you this. If yeah. everybody said, no, Amazon and the Amazon employees deserve better care, I will not shop at Amazon until they fix that. We have mm-hmm. the collective spending power to, to fix that. We just choose not to. Yeah. You know, right, like, yeah. We, like, like, you know, and I'm not picking on what you said is a necessary evil. I disagree. It's not necessary. We decide it's necessary because we decide that those people's lives are expendable because we need the convenience. Yeah, the con- yeah, convenience. That's the... 
I think well, I need you know, my packages whole... in two days so they can get sick and die. You know, that's that's too bad. Yeah, you know, that's that's really sad, man. To see yeah. people are getting treated like uh, commodities, man. Right. And it goes back to what you said about uh, the data privacy again, you know, going back full circle to the beginning. Uh, it, that's what it's all about. If we are willing to sacrifice certain things to make sure that people in our society, you know, our brothers, sisters, and friends and colleagues are getting taken care of, we got to make those hard decisions, you know, and first world turn, you know? Yeah. Um, I know, you know, before I let you go, I know you, we talked about uh, you, you know, dabbling into music and, and all that stuff. Can you give me like a background on how your, your love for music, where that came from and what you're planning on <laughs> yeah, doing? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I grew up in the, like in the nineties and like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Mu- music was like, a, I trying to find the best way to describe Chicago at that time. But um, I, I feel like we, we, we identified ourselves almost along these kind of like very different um, lines. Um, Mm-hmm. I remember when I was like in junior high, a good friend of mine, his older brother was a DJ. And I, I just remember seeing his equipment and just think it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were like all these house parties at the time. I was in like fifth, sixth, seventh grade, like, you know, and you, you'd hear about or maybe you'd get invited to like we were too young, you know, and we'd see these flyers, you know, mm-hmm. of all these crews and, and B-boys and B-girls and like DJs. Mm-hmm. And it's like, like you could be famous in your neighborhood if you were good enough at this like creativity, whether it was like, you know, like spinning on your head or, or, mm-hmm. or dancing or like DJing or whatever, like mm-hmm. that was like, and at the time there was like this big movement of both hip hop music and house music in Chicago. And yeah. especially in the early nineties, it was like the, like the hip hop crowd and the house crowd were mm-hmm. like blending into this like singular thing. And so yeah. you had like just all these crews that were just like hip hop crews. Like think of like like a crew of graffiti writers, but for mm-hmm. like anything, you know, it was like party crews. Yeah. Um, like, yeah so DJ, that was kind of like, yeah. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off, but DJ Frankie Knuckles, right? Like those. Yeah. Guys, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. So like, yeah, the whole that the whole house music movement, mm-hmm. but it was like hip hip hop. Like was it was it was all of that. Like it was everything, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was like. Y- you had to participate. Yeah. You know, you couldn't just like, like you could be a fan of like Bad Boy Bill and whoever, you know, the DJs were like various mm-hmm. DJs at the time, you yeah. know, like you could buy the mixtapes and all that. I remember I was trying to find all the, the mixtapes coming out of New York at the time, all the hip hop mixtapes, you know, like checking for like Doo-Wop and Ron G and like all these other guys, you know. And yeah. and I, I just rem- remember that. But like you wanted to be a participant. You wanted to be a graffiti writer, a DJ. Like you couldn't just be a, a spectator. Yeah, you know, and and, and so that kind of drove me. And um, I, I had my first set of turntables. I think at age twelve or thirteen, through you know money I had worked for and or stolen, um, or you know got through ill gotten ways. You know, <laughs> like I said, us us kids from Chicago were very resourceful. We got what we wanted, what we needed. Um, and you know, eventually I was buying this turntable, that turntable, trading in this, trading in that. I'm looking across the room at a pair of Techniques twelve hundreds. Um, I purchased those in 1994 and I still use, I still use those every day. So, you know, so with some upgrade, upgraded things, but yeah, I DJed for a while. I got into kind of music production. Uh, I went to school for a while, you know, to be an audio engineer Mm -hmm. and ended up kind of working in audio and audio consulting for, for almost 10 years, more like, you know, making products and and things like that. 
Um, but yeah, I've always had a, a love for for DJing and music. I, I've never really considered myself. I've, I've produced music. I've never considered myself a musician, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Some people might. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It was like always like for me, music, you know, hip hop music, soul music, funk music. It, it, like you had to be participatory because it was about mm-hmm. taking something that was almost like, you know, this breakbeat from the 70s or 60s. And, you know, yeah. we're re-earthing it and refiltering it and reimagining it. And mm-hmm. now creating something brand new out of that. Yeah. So that, you know, there, I think there's something fun in that. I don't know. Like not to like try to make a tie in, but I think there's something with that, with data. You know what I mean? Like you dive into yeah. the, you try to figure something out and, mm-hmm. you know, you process it, you filter it. And then after all of that, you've come to a conclusion. I don't know. I, I find so many interesting parallels between um, like audio engineering and data. And I've, mm-hmm. I've had these conversations with some people recently, and it's, it's, it's really? very fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's very, very fascinating. Um, like you, you take a, a, a piece of a drum mm-hmm. and you filter it, you know, or you take a drum break and you filter it. Yeah. And then you, you create something new out of it. it. It's not that different than taking a data set, and filtering it and, you know, creating something new out of it. How you can take somebody's very messy sales data mm-hmm. and now determine what's going to happen to them over the next six months. Like it's yeah. not that dissimilar than you know, taking this thing that was dusty on the, in the corner and now you've re-recorded it, reimagined it. And now mm-hmm. it's something interesting for the next six months. You know, I, I think there's a parallel there. Oh, that's, I like how you put that together. That's cool, man. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I can see the, the, the connection. Um, yeah. Like, you know, going back to what you um, said before, like back then, you know, uh, I'm old enough to, you know, to go up in the nineties and enjoy music from the nineties. It was all about, Actually, also the early 90s, you know, it was all about the four elements of hip hop, right? Yeah. You know? And to be, you know, a hip hop head, you actually had to participate in all that. You had to do the graffiti. You had to understand DJing. Yeah. Uh, you, you had to be a B-boy in some, you know, even if you weren't the best B-boy, but you had some moves you, you practiced, you know, uh, and then you had to do the graffiti and all that stuff. And MCing, you know, you do it with your friends or if you're really into it, you try to battle people in your block or you go to a party. So that whole participation was there, but now you're bringing it to 2020. S- certain kids, the only connection they have to hip hop is streaming it on their, on their phones, you know, to, I don't know. to I, it. I, yeah. I, I hate to be the old guy. Like, so yeah. I don't like, I don't know. Like I, I bought singles and mixtapes, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't, I didn't yeah. get the genuine article. I got some reprocessed, re-recorded noisy version. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like I, I listen to all these old breaks, you know, whether I'm listening, to, you know, to James Brown or the Pointer Sisters or whatever, like mm-hmm. on top of it is like, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like so I can sit there and be like, oh, they just listen to Spotify and all that. It's just like their way of like consuming, you know, mm-hmm. the but I don't know. The thing that troubles me in music right now is the, the lack of uh, lineage. Mm, um, I see. So so like there's a there's a. If you listen to a lot of the, the, the music makers of the early 90s, you know, yeah. uh, the Pete Rocks and mm-hmm. the Ski Beats and the DJ Scratches and the DJ Premier. Yeah. Or Premier, Like, yeah. they had such a reverence for, like, Roy Ayers. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, they had mm-hmm. such a reverence for Stevie Wonder. They have such a re- – like, they, they praise the, the – they understand the, the brilliance that these – musicians brought you know what i mean exactly you know like 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 the brilliance of betty wright you know rest in peace like mm-hmm. like her brilliance like what she brought to a song oh, 
while was relevant in the 60s and 70s, was also relevant in the, like there was a soul there that they were able to, uh, you know, pull back out 20 years later and reimagine, you yeah. know, and, and, yeah. and those musicians found ways to connect with the musicians. Like, look at the roots. The roots have joints with Roy Ayers. Like, mm-hmm. like they like they went back and like did stuff with, like with the original artists and stuff. And the thing that kind of troubles me over the past couple of decades is it just doesn't seem to be a, a respect of the history of, of what came before. It's very much like, ah, forget them old guys. We the new ones. You know, we don't care about what came before us. And that, for me, yeah. is just troubling, you know? Yeah, you, you're right about that. Uh, one of my favorite producers is Jay Dilla, and he was yeah. really deep into that. He yeah. used to go to, you know, a record shop and then dig crates for, like, hours upon hours, you know, trying to yeah. find new sound and pay homage to... The people that came before it was like almost like going to church you know going to a record store and trying to find the right record you know the right song and going back home with it chop it up and do something different with it add your own twist yeah. to it and that whole process you know like you said was basically it's, it was it was basically like praying to the people that came before you and yeah. give them respects and then take that and then share it with uh you know with with your listeners with your fans and that i love that word to that you know i love that word sharing like that's that's literally what it is like it's like these producers like went and spent hours and hours and days and weeks and months you know digging through the dustiest rooms and the dirtiest hallways and the disgusting basements right Mm -hmm. and then they found that like fuck they found that amazing thing and i like you said share then they brought it back and they shared it you know, Jay Dilla shared it yeah. and he shared it like through his like, you know, through himself. Right. He played mm-hmm. it because that's the way he he heard it. Yeah. And now you you, you like you get this gift. You know what I mean? Of like mm-hmm. the ancestors basically of like <laughs> yeah. half, half a century ago now reimagined in a way that you understand even more. You know exactly. what I mean? Like, like I think about all the artists that I listened to through hip hop in the 90s that I would have never listened to. If it weren't for the producers that that put them in front of me, you know what I mean? And now I have a palette for music that reaches way beyond, you know, when I was born or way before I should say I was born. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I don't know. I feel like it's unfortunate to a sense that we've kind of lost that a little bit recently. Anyway, it feels like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just an old man, but it it definitely feels that way that there's not a, you know, within the, I know I got disconnected from DJing a lot because I I, I encountered that kind of attitude a lot of not really like having reverence from those that like paved the path, you know, really interesting. Yeah. We're all sitting on the shoulders of giants, all of us, no matter what you do. I don't care what it is that you do. Somebody did it harder than the generation before you. And it was even harder the generation before that. Exactly. You know? so, like you, you didn't really like, you're so beneficial of everything that came before you like act like it, you know? Yeah. You're definitely right about that. Like, you know, I always go back to jazz, you know, I know Chicago and New York was really big in the movement and uh, putting basically jazz in the forefront. Chess, of chess, records. chess records out of Chicago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like uh, I always go back to to Miles Davis and you know to John Coltrane, uh, Arnett Coleman, and those guys. When they were making music, they were actually creating something that no one ever heard before. Or, yeah. like you said, Dizzy probably did something, and then Miles heard it, and then Miles is like, you know what? I'm gonna take that. Or Bird yeah. probably did something, and Miles heard it. And Miles was like, man, this is brilliant. 
this is what I heard, but I know I can't be burned, right? It's impossible for anybody in the history of the of humankind, you know, to be like Bird, but I'm going to inter- interpret it the way that I heard it. And then he became Miles Davis, right? Yeah. So, uh, like you said, that lineage, you know, that passing down the torch or that translation is getting lost now. Nobody, who's doing that now? I don't know. I think the last. I, I can tell person, you. I, well, I can tell. I can tell you who did you know? it in the nineties. There was there was a DJ by the name of DJ Flair in the nineties, right? Flair, okay. DJ Flair. He created something called the Flair Scratch, right? Okay. It's it, it, to this day one of the most influential scratches in DJ turntablism that ever was and ever will be. Yeah. Um, it, 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 like there's an argument to be made. It changed the way scratching was. Like it mm-hmm. it changed the way the equipment was built. <laughs> now. Most people have never heard of DJ Flair and lots of people have heard of a Flair scratch. And the reason that most people haven't heard of DJ Flair is DJ Flair was never the best person to perform the Flair scratch. Um, he's simply oh. the one that kind of figured it out. And then oh, everybody else mastered it and took it to other levels that, you know, you know, Invisible Scratch Pickles and, and, and DJ Qbert and, you know, mm-hmm. then DJ uh, A-Track after him and then DJ Craze. Oh, yeah. Um, and all, all these guys, man, like they took the flare scratch to a place that DJ Flair probably couldn't have imagined in his wildest dreams. Oh, but I see what you mean. That, wow. that, that's what like when you talk about like like jazz and things like that, I think about things. I, I think about like watching those those guys, you know, 30 years ago doing that stuff. Like that's what was happening. Like somebody was creating a technique. You know, another thing people don't know, um, you know, DJ Kubert and Mixmaster Mike um, were real mm-hmm. close way, way back when. And yeah. if you watch, uh, you know, Scratch, this is a documentary DVD, you know, Kubert talks about how much he used to bite and steal <laughs> from Mixmaster <laughs> Mike. And yeah. like DJ Kubert is thought of as like the Michael Jordan of scratching. You know what I mean? And like, yeah, like he talks about like, nah, I learned from this guy, you know, and, and when when Mixmaster Mike moved away, I was like, oh, no, what, <laughs> who am I going to bite now? You know what I mean? <laughs> Exactly. And, and that, like, I don't know, that's music, that's jazz, that's, you know, funk, that's soul. Like, that's what it is. It's like, you know, you did something and, and, and it made me feel a way. Now I'm going to do something. Yeah. Or you played a note in a certain way and, like, now I'm going to play that note in my own way. You know, I'm going to play it like you, but, like, my way of, of like you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, you're right. One thing that uh, I read uh, Miles Davis' uh, autobiography, you know, like, he's one of my heroes. And he was saying that. Uh, when you think about it, everything is jazz because you always have to improvise to yeah. become better, right? So, yeah. and that's yeah. that's you know, I love that quote truth. by the way. I love that quote by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, everything is jazz. You have to improvise to make things better. So, like, that's how I see life. I, I, I talk to a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life. Um, so I, I tried to be a connector um, for the okay. past couple months. And, and, you know, even before COVID, you know, people that know me will say that, you know, I'm very much, I mean, you can, you can speak to that, right? Like, like yeah. I, I'm very much a connector of people. So oh, yeah. maybe email me, you know, like that, like start a, con- start a personal conversation. Don't, uh, <laughs> don't look at me from afar. If you, you know, if anybody wants to connect, I'm more than happy to connect, but do it personally. Um, so yeah, J J M I Z E L uh three one two at gmail.com. That's probably the, the best way. Good old email. Okay, sounds good, man. Uh <laughs> thank you. That was a really interesting answer. I really appreciate it, man. <laughs> and uh hopefully, hopefully we can get uh, a part two to this conversation. And uh thank you. Yeah, very no, much. I'm, I'm yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. This is exciting. I had a good time. Thank you guys for listening, and I'll be back next week with some more amazing contents and people.